Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Hello, it's Violet here. Welcome to this special live episode of the Travels Through Time podcast at the Buckingham Literary Festival last weekend. The award-winning writer Flora Fraser takes us to one of the most remote places in the British Isles to witness the dramatic story of how her namesake, Flora MacDonald, helped Bonnie Prince Charlie escape after his failed attempt to take the throne from George II. Flora Fraser is the author of several acclaimed books, including Beloved Emma, The Life of Emma Lady Hamilton, Venus of Empire, The Life of Pauline Bonaparte, and The Washingtons. Her book, Pretty Young Rebel, The Life of Flora MacDonald, is out now in hardback. Hello everyone and welcome to this special live episode of the Travels Through Time podcast. And today we're going to be going on a real adventure with Flora Fraser and Flora MacDonald, going to one of the most romantic and remote places in the British Isles. So I hope you're all ready and I hope you've packed a raincoat because the weather <laughs> might not be good, but if it is, it is like the, the, the Bahamas, isn't it, up there, when the sun shines? Yes, you might want to pack a midge net as well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Although apparently, in when they were filming Braveheart in Malig or Mora on the west coast of Scotland, they discovered that Avon's skin so soft yes. is this miracle anti-midge green. Yeah, I go on holidays to Scotland every year and I never go without my skin so soft and I... I don't know whether Avon have embraced that or whether they're still... Um, anyway, it must have improved their sales. So today we're going to go back to the mid-18th century. Before we set off, I, I wanted to ask you, Flora, a bit about your background, um, because, of course, you come from this incredibly distinguished line of female historians. And I just wonder what it was like growing up in that kind of environment. Did you always know you were going to follow in your mother and your grandmother's footsteps? Once I passed through wanting to be a fireman, um, I, I did always want to be a writer, but then I had a, a teenage rebellion and said I was going to be a lawyer. No one took much notice, and then I married a lawyer, and I thought, well, I'm not going to trail behind. And then I couldn't get a job, and so some publishers took a punt on me being third generation. It was very clear that this was a single punt, and there would be no more. <laughs> there was little money forthcoming, but there would be none for a future book. And, and it turned out that I loved doing it. Not writing fiction, which I, I tried writing. I tried writing one, but I did manage a paperback in a series called um, Nightshade, Nightshades, The Darker Side of Love. But when I tried to write a kind of what you might call a proper novel, I found that I was a chimpanzee and had no idea what sentence should follow or even what word. So I fled to 
non-fiction and historical biography where I've remained ever since very happily. Yeah, I think there's something terrifying about fiction that you can write anything you like, at least with history, you know, there's, there's the history you can kind of cling to. And you've written several acclaimed books about female historical figures. And I wanted to ask you about the particular challenges of that, because it's very difficult often, to, often isn't it, to find information. And can you tell us a bit about how you go about researching? Well, it's, it's changed a lot over 40, 45 years. I, did, I started in the early 80s in one way that there is this marvellous thing called the internet. And so you don't have to go to libraries for and archives for everything as you used to have to. But for me, it's always been the same method, which is I start by saying, oh, I'd really like to write about, let's say, my first book, Emma Hamilton. And, and then I sort of see what, what there is in the in the papers, and particularly with books that I wrote more or less uh, entirely from papers in the Royal Archives about George IV's wife, Queen Caroline, and about another one about the six daughters of George III. I start with, if you like, the papers, which present a bit of a puzzle, because then I'm as near to the person or the people in the case of the six daughters of George III as possible. Obviously, I don't know a lot. Uh, I mean, I've got to fill in later, but, but I like to start so I get their voice. And so when you say the papers, you mean their letters? Their letters, their letters, their correspondence. Uh, in some cases, their estate papers, but mostly it's with women of the 18th century it's letters, they couldn't own properties. But that's the way I do it, and others start by finding out the, all the facts that are in the, in the public domain about them. And why do I do it this way? Because it certainly adds to the time to sort of get these voices. Yeah. I suppose because women in the 18th century, when I started, I was very aware, were not represented. This was a long time ago. This was 40 years ago. It's not the case now. But the same sort of holds good, that sort of, I want to midwife their voices. And this is the way I, I do it. And then, of course, I do go to find the facts and then do footsteps research following where they went. And isn't it the case that often with women, their letters are not collected together into any kind of archive, even royal women? Yeah. And so it's quite difficult to... They can be in all different places, and it's actually quite a sort of treasure hunt in order to find them. Yes. And in the case of uh, Flora MacDonald, her letters, some are in the National Library of Scotland, um, some are up on Sky. And I suppose that I've always been used to. Yes, there might be most of Princess, um, her paper, 18th century Princess, her papers would be mostly in the Royal Archives, but you're still having to go to county record offices and possibly abroad. Well, if she married. Exactly. Yeah. And so you were named after 
Flora MacDonald, I believe. And I wonder if this is a book that you have been sort of at the back of your mind planning on writing since you were a little girl. Or... No, I, I mean, I was fascinated by Bonnie Prince Charlie as a child. You know, we lived the other side, one side of Inverness and the other side was Culloden. And so, and all around there were, there was Jacobite history. And so the 45, the Jacobite rebellion of 1745 was sort of, I suppose, it was very living history all around. Flora MacDonald was part of that story, but I just accepted that I had been named after her, as many in the district had been too, and still today. It's a common name, if you like, in in. Scotland always has been because of her. Yeah, and so people in Scotland today, I mean, she's still very much part of the, the sort of national story. Is, is that right? Yes, yes, she, she, she is. And as I found when I, I published the book in America earlier this year, her story is very much remembered by those who, by families who emigrated to, to America 200 years ago, but are proud of their Scottish heritage. And they know her story, I mean, in great detail. It was really fascinating. Because she emigrated, didn't she, after? Because she emigrated. Yeah. So she went and lived in North, North Carolina? North Carolina. But this heroine of the 45, this Jacobite heroine, rebel, kind of, was, yes, she was a loyalist in the Revolutionary War, and I had no idea when I was growing up that Flora MacDonald lived in British-occupied New York. I knew always that Dr Johnson and uh, James Boswell, Johnson's young biographer and lawyer, came visiting Flora and stayed the night in Skye with her and her husband, Alan. And I did know that she said to them, you were lucky to catch me, I'm off to America. But it never occurred to me to wonder where she went, or nor did it occur to me to note the date, which was 1773. She emigrates with her husband and most of her seven children the following year, which is, of course, months before the Revolutionary War broke up. So you could say I've I've, I'm writing this book because I'm so horrified at my own earlier lack of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then didn't she end up living in Nova Scotia at one point? Yes. So adventurous. Alan, her husband, who was a prisoner of war for two years in the Revolutionary War, uh, and Flora sort of ducked and, ducked and dived or dove in um, North Carolina. And then they were united in, uh, in New York, and Alan was then sent to, to a garrison outside Halifax, Nova Scotia, and to do garrison duty for a Highland emigrant regiment, and Flora went with him. Amazing. Well, I think we should, we should get in our time machine, and I'm going to ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, if you could travel back in time, which year would you visit? 1746. And can you give us a brief description of what is going on in 1746 so that we're all with you. So the Hanoverians are on the throne 
and have been since 1714. George II is king, and the previous year, 1745, a Stuart prince in exile in Rome made this extraordinary madcap rash tilt at the throne for his father, James, this Stuart exiled in Rome. And Bonnie Prince Charlie, as we now know him, or Charles Edward Stuart, landed on the west coast of Scotland with uh, a very few companions. And he raised a Highland army of chiefs and clansmen. And down they went, having extraordinary success until they got to Derby, 100 miles north of London. Uh, George II either was or wasn't planning to flee to Hanover from whence he came. Um, but his son, William Augustus, Duke of Cumberland, or Butcher Cumberland as he's sometimes known, pushed the prince and his army back up to outside Inverness and in April 1746 the prince and his Jacobite army, the army as a fighting force was destroyed, many killed, more wounded and chiefs and clansmen who could made for the west coast, the chiefs to, who had the money to try and get to France and the prince with them and in June 1746, the prince, who after these months of hiding out in the Scottish hills and uh, glens, comes to this young gentlewoman, Flora MacDonald, on a Hebridean island, South Uist, and asks for her aid. And this is our first scene, so can you take that, tell us a bit about South Uist, where it is in the Hebrides? Sure. So South Uist is part of an archipelago really far out in the Atlantic. It's the Outer Hebrides, if you like, and at the, in the 18th century it was known as the Long Island because all the islands, Lewis, Harris, North Uist, Bembecula and South Uist, are connected when the tide is is up and so on the Long Island this remote windset treeless island the prince has been taking refuge in a in a in a glen but and he's been there for three weeks successfully evading parties of Hanoverian officers and men. But now they're getting really close and Flora's stepfather comes up with a plan. Flora, this 24-year-old young woman, is minding her brother's cattle and staying overnight in this shealing or a sort of shepherd's hut um, on South Uist. And she's awoken at midnight on Midsummer's Eve. And there is a cousin of hers, Neil, who says, the prince is outside. It's an open secret that the prince is in hiding on South Uist. Uh, not obviously the Hanoverians don't know, but um, all, the <laughs> all the islanders know. And many, like Flora's stepfather, 
is taking the king's shilling as a, a government militia officer, but playing a double game. Uh, Neil says the prince is outside. Flora throws on some clothes, and the prince appears, but he is not this elegant figure in sort of blue velvet, you know, etc. That he might have been in the Vatican court in Rome, or or even when he went when he made his entry into Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh. He's in the dress of the country, which sort of plaid, old kilt, ta everything's tattered, beard, very midge-bitten, because <laughs> he, he likes the drama, and the midges love those who, who like a drag. Do they? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, it's the sweet blood. And <laughs> he did not have skin so soft, unfortunately. No. Hadn't been invented yet. Yeah. Anyway, and the plan is, as Flora is told by her cousin Neil and by the prince, that she is to dress up the prince as her Irish maid, Betty Burke, and take him with a passport that her stepfather, this militia uh, captain, will give her over the sea to Skye. And on Skye, which is a, a part of the inner Hebrides, if you see what I mean, close to the uh, west coast of Scotland, other highland chiefs and clans will take care of the prince and get him to eventually a, a, a harbour where he can take a, a ship to France. So Flora, first of all, quite rightly, she says she's absolutely not going to because she's a young unmarried woman and yes, she's a, the daughter of a country gentleman or a gentleman of the country, but she's got no money, but what she has got is a virginal reputation. Yeah, and, and I love the moment when then one of the soldiers says, I'll marry you, I'll marry you now, in order to... And she pays no attention to that. Yeah, she's... But eventually she, she does say, and of course the prince is as charming as you would expect mm. of one <clears throat> brought up, um, and no one ever said the Stuarts weren't charming um, and uh, glamorous and gallant, but not necessarily the best people to rule the country. So the prince is, of course, very charming, but ultimately Flora helps him, as she later tells the Hanoverian captor, because she says to this Hanoverian general, I would have done the same for you had you been in distress. And this is a remark which will carry her far and distinguish her from the Jacobite soldiers, officers, men, who the English and the Hanoverian government regard as rabble and vermin and say so. And Flora is this, she's in this uh, separate category because she has acted not out of misguided loyalty to the Stuarts, but, um, but from clemency. And, and this is really an important part of her story. Yes, she did have a strong Presbyterian faith, but she was also canny, Flora, uh, all her life. And in the 18th century, where patronage was the name of the game, what we would call networking, 
she was one of the best uh, sort of networkers I've come across in the 18th century, men or women. And, you know, that was the name of the game that I yeah. got on. And she, <clears throat> she, she really worked it. So... Um, but there must have been a lot of people in Scotland at that time who were Protestant and who... Yes. And I, I think that's such an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Because, as you say, the, the, the glamour and, you know, the whole story of Bonnie Prince Charlie, just the fact he's called Bonnie Prince Charlie, you know, everyone obviously felt... felt and there must have been a lot of Scottish people who were playing both sides and just, you know, quite w wanting him to be successful, but then at the same time towing the line for the Protestant Hanoverians. Yes, and I think one of the um, key motives for everyone helping him uh, in the Highlands was it would have been terrible dishonour to have the Stuart Prince taken on your land because the English had had the Stuart, Stuart monarchs since the early 17th century, but the, the Scots had had Stuarts since the 14th century. Well, the Stuarts were Scottish, weren't they? Really? Exactly. There's so many dimensions yeah. to it. It's so really so the, it wasn't just Catholic and no. Protestant, if you see what I mean. It yeah. was, um, yes, uh, I would say that Flora's stepfather, who, if you like, was the architect of this plan, the Betty Burke, the Irish maid plan, he wasn't the only person who spoke with a forked tongue. It was, yeah. I mean, it was double speak all the way. And, and it infuriated the Hanoverian officers, of course, when they were coming, trying to work out what Hello there, it's Peter here, and it's time for the latest news from Ace Cultural Tours. Now, a few weeks ago, you might have listened to my conversation with Andrew Spira, who's one of Ace's tour guides. He was telling me about some of the great art of the High Renaissance in the year 1500. If that's a subject that interests you and you'd like to find out a little bit more today, then ACE have an array of brilliant art tours coming up over the weeks and months ahead. In July, for instance, there's one setting out to explore the art and landscapes of Switzerland. And then closer to home, there's another on the art collections and stately homes of the West Country. Then in August, they have a tour which is investigating the art of Constable in Gainsborough in Suffolk. If you're after something a little bit different, then why not head off to Hamburg with Ace to discover the history of the Hanseatic League, or you could relax at the Verona Opera Festival or feel the wind in your hair on a tour to wild and ancient Orkney. I think that that's the one that I would go for. Find the tour that's perfect for you at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. Holidays for the culturally curious. Well, it's so exciting, and the way that Flora writes it in her book, I mean, it is literally, you're breathless. It's there rowing over the minch, and, and I can't recommend it enough. But we have to move on now yes. to scene two, yes. which is in September, and uh, Flora has obviously been, you know, taken, taken in by the Hanoverian forces, and um, she is being questioned, isn't she? Yes. So she's, so Flora's been captured. The prince has, has got away. He finally gets away to France in late September, but Flora's been captured and, like other Jacobite rebels, is being taken round the uh, north tip of Scotland and down 
towards London, where she will stand trial. The, the ship that's bringing her puts in at Leith, the port for Edinburgh, and although she's not allowed on, on shore, uh, absolutely kind of fascinating month that she spends, and she hasn't been out of either the, the Long Island or Skye, apart from um, some months in her life. So she's, and yet she's, she's a sophisticated, and that's partly because her, her stepfather's sophisticated former soldier on the continent, and then she's a protege of the clan, her clan chief's wife, Lady Clan Ranald. But these Jacobite ladies who sort of cluster around, they're a sort of coterie, cluster around this marvellous widow of Scotland's premier architect, Sir William Bruce, Dame Magdalene, who's, I think, in her late 70s or 80s, in her house, the Citadel in Leith, which is sort of on, on top of some Cromwellian fortifications, has this gang and they they buy, when they hear that Flora's coming, they buy her a riding habit, they buy her a, a, a handsome <coughs> uh, Bible, two, two volumes of a Bible. They go, they're rowed out to the ship and the captain has given her um, a stateroom, I mean, the main cabin. So this is, I mean, all the other rebels are down in the hold, yeah. eating mealy bread. In the faux castle. And she's <clears throat> being treated by the Hanoverian general who captures her like his daughter, and he's, you know, going to be the... He's, he's the heir to the dukedom of Argyll, and the Argyles are the government, the Campbells are the... the Campbells of Argyle are the government clan. So, you know, everyone is treating her like sort of she's made of cut glass. But she must have been incredibly charming, yeah. I think. You get that in every, yeah. all, all your yeah. uh, the interviews when she's being questioned and her answers and the way she just so <coughs> clever and yeah. irresistible. I yes. <clears throat> and she's this, uh, you know, we have portraits done when, when she's down in London. Again, extraordinary that this farmer's daughter should have these portraits um, made of her by the leading portrait <coughs> painters of London. And you can see she's very, she's got that pretty sort of Celtic colouring, dark hair and fair skin, blue eyes, and she's petite, but she's, you know, it, Dr Johnson later obviously finds her completely irresistible. And in fact, their meeting is two kind of titans of different kind of the 18th century. But these, these, these Jacobite ladies, they come on board, the ship's officers say, please, please come out, come and see her. Let us get up a dance for you. Please stay the night. I mean, it's like, you know, and, the, and these Jacobite ladies, who are the daughters of earls and so on, are saying, oh, may I please sleep in the same bed as you to Flora because, <laughs> you know, just wanting to get close to someone and have a good story to who tell. had been close to the prince. And uh, so it, it, and it was, and this was where she first told her story. I mean, she'd been examined by General Campbell. So, but this is when 
her her celebrity begins when they everyone knows the story because hit the newspapers. Horace Walpole down in London has heard about it because this extraordinary thing, this uh, cross dressing by the prince, yeah, and and this sort of redoubtable young woman. Don't you think it was also because they probably people in London expected that if you'd grown up on South Uist, you know, yes, that well, you weren't going to be a beautiful, be intelligent, be charm, you know, you weren't going to have those attributes. And I suppose for them, she was this mysterious girl who, you know, could tramp across the moorland for four days without taking a breath and, you know, had this other whole side to her life that it was very yeah. surprising. She was a sort of paradoxical person. <coughs> yes, and they were very, they were astonished the Jacobite ladies in Leith that she, you know, she had all the manners of a Edinburgh lady. She could, you know, handle, as it were, poor tea, which was the... Yeah, and use then, a knife and fork and all that. Stuff. All of that. <coughs> but also she spoke Scots or English not Gaelic. I mean, obviously she spoke Gaelic too, mm. but you know, I mean, it, North Britain, it really was sort of Caledonia wild. The, yeah. the people in in England and London really regarded people up in these sort of Hebrides as, as, as sort of possibly, you know, kind of rather monstrous. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's go to your third scene, which is Flora arriving in London. Tell us what's happening there. Yes, yeah, so this is... So, so after a month, they're refitting the ship and then she moves to a new ship and she comes down and this captain, of course, is also dead keen for her to be... Um, for everything to... You, you know, cabin servants to do her bidding... But they they get to London, and then this is reality because there is a prison ship where all the the jails are full of Jacobite prisoners. There are prisoners one in there are so many in London that only one in ten is being tried in this special court. Some are hung, some transported. So the um, peers who are immured in, in in the tower, they're executed. That's their privilege rather than being hung. So it, it's an extremely dangerous world for anyone who's been involved, as Flora has, in what we call today the 45, which means the, the Jacobite uprising. Even if she didn't levy war against the king, she was involved in hiding the prince, the prince. And most, as I say, were in jails or, you know, in really distressing circumstances. And does that include women? Yes. Okay. So yes, and and women of actually uh, greater rank than Flora are imprisoned, and and we have because some of them clans clan uh, clan chiefs' wives are obviously literate, and they they do write remonstrances. Um, but but Flora, who is taken to this prison ship, like a prison hulk, before before she's taken there, she sends a um, a note to her captor, General Campbell, and says um, she'd uh, very much like to know what's to become of her, 
Um, and a letter has come down from the commander, commander in chief in Scotland, Lord Albemarle, from Edinburgh to the government saying that practically everyone who's ever come into any contact with Flora is very concerned for what, what will happen to her. Anyway, so she's only two days in this prison house eating mealy bread or whatever. And then a messenger comes to escort her to this rather nice townhouse in London, just by St James's Park, where she's then sort of becomes the pet of, it's like an uh, old maid, he's called Mr Dick, his wife Mrs Dick and his wife Miss Dick. And, um, and while, the, and she's, she's with, it's sort of, she's with clan chiefs who, many from the Long Island, who, are, who don't actually have peerages, so they're not in the tower. But this is way above, if you sort of mean, what her station should be. They complain endlessly and say, oh, my goodness. It's you not know, fair. I, yeah, I, I need some fresh air. Um, Flora just smiles. And, and when a general amnesty is um, announced the, the following year, she then makes still more uh, friends in high places and goes back to Sky with a dowry um, of oh, yes, £1,500, <coughs> which you have to multiply by £100 to get anything like what it would be today in any way, whatever that is, £15,000. Um, it goes so much further in Sky, where indeed she <laughs> marries and has seven children. But she's still in, in 1746. The year ends with her being examined by the Privy Council in this, in the cockpit, which, you know, the person who's examined just before the cockpit was indeed a theatre. Charles II had a theatre in his palace of Whitehall and mm. it's sort of left over so the Privy Council are using it. The last person to be, before her, to be examined by the Privy Council in the, uh, cockpit was a, a forebear of um, Rebecca, my sister of mine, uh, Simon of the 45, a wicked sort of clan chief who... The old fox. The old fox, yes, who ended up being the last peer to lose his head on Tower Hill. So, you know, going to be examined was not, but she survives everything. Well, it's very refreshing to read a story about a young woman who actually comes out on top rather than being <laughs> murdered or treated appallingly badly. So I urge you all to read this book. It's fascinating. Um, and I have one last question I need to ask yeah. you, which is if you could have picked something up from one of the three places that we've visited, um, what would it be? I think it would be the handsomely bound to uh, pocket volumes of the Bible, because which Flora asked for when one of the Jacobite ladies in Leith um, asked her if there was anything she wanted because she'd come from her home in Skye with only a prayer book. And I like to think that these, these pocket volumes sustained her in the dangerous times to come. That's a great choice. Thank you so much. That was me, Violet Muller, speaking to Flora Fraser about her fascinating new book, Pretty Young Rebel, The Life of Flora MacDonald.
I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Until next time, goodbye.